Episode 33 of The Passive Hang. It's Fayon here. Remember, check out the website, thepassivehang.com, where I've got the podcasts, I'm sharing videos, and now I'm writing informational guides for all you movement enthusiasts. Check it out now on thepassivehang.com. All right. Well, thanks guys for joining once again to the Passive Hang. This is episode 33 and I've got Antonio Torres on the podcast who runs the Tower Way, which is a really, uh, how do I describe it? It's like a, a YouTube channel, but maybe it's something more. You've got the website going on. So maybe it's going out to be something more, which uh, I got on. I'm not sure how, but I guess when I first found it, I recognized, okay, there's something more going on here and I really appreciated the quality. And it also had a bit of, um, yeah, it was really fun to follow along as well because Antonio at that time was based in China as well. So it was a little bit more interesting because I had traveled there for a little while. And then now I believe you're back in Ohio, is it? And you're running your own sort of movement groups over there. So welcome to the show, Antonio. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Yeah, I am in Ohio right now, but um, I should be returning to China within the next uh, three months or so. We'll see how the visa process goes. Hmm. I wanted to ask about Ohio. What happens out in Ohio? Pretty much, uh, not not a lot. Uh, <laughs> I was I was born here, and uh, so the the community is very tight knit, and there's a lot of uh, good things happening. If if you know Ohio, we have uh, we're very famous for our music industry. We have something called the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is a lot of different artists come from this area. And I think it's because um, maybe there's not a lot to do. So people have to develop themselves either creatively, like in the music field or like I did from the movement field, you know, developing myself. And then at some point um, they find that they either develop a community in Ohio or they need to move out to a bigger city, either in the United States or, or outside. And so maybe this brings me to my next portion with which is about the china bit and is it so did you start breeding this curiosity of going okay like i need to depart from ohio see the wider world and i uh, i wanted to ask like why why china yeah i always had the idea to to move out and you know travel if i didn't know i was going to live in a different country but pretty much when i was uh first studying a language i had the opportunity to study mandarin chinese and i thought that was very interesting and a lot of my friends did not want to do that one because they thought that the language was too hard. So they all picked Spanish or German or whatever. And I, th- I said, okay, I really like, you know, Kung Fu and, and Chinese history. So why don't I give it a try? And basically on day one, I was hooked. And from, from that day, I knew I at least wanted to travel to China and, you know, improve my Mandarin or see China a little bit. And then once I got to university, I continued uh, learning Chinese. And then from there, it was kind of embedded in my mind that I need to go there for at least a year, if not longer. And then I ended up staying for almost three years. And then the pandemic happened. And then I uh, came back to Ohio. Oh, wow. It sounds like quite the journey. And it's funny, like those things sometimes when you just dip your toes in and then it feels right. And then when that experience becomes something more. And I think that's the great thing about language is you're not just learning something from the textbook. Then you go to this whole country, right? And then it all makes sense. And then I guess once you're there, it's easy to just be like, okay, well, I just got to keep on going more down this path. But uh, when you were in China for those years, what, what were you doing there? I originally came to work. So 
the, the way that I found it, I wanted to stay for a long time and travel visas only allow you to stay for about three months, depending on what country you're from. Uh, there are other visas you can do like business visas or things like that, but I just didn't qualify for them. So the best option that I found was to work there. Uh, and a work visa allows you to stay for at least a year. And if you, um, you know, get a new contract, you can stay even longer. And I heard the process was very easy once you're, once you have the work visa and it turned out to be so. So once I got there, I stayed for a year, which was my original plan. And then after a year, I just didn't want to leave. I wanted to stay. I really loved the, the life there and what I was learning. So uh, I like renewed my contract and, and stayed for another year and then renewed my contract again and then stayed for another year. And I was uh, going to do the same thing over and over. And then um, at the end of that journey, uh, I, was, I was basically just training on my own and I had a small group in China. Mm. And then uh, I started to put uh, videos out on YouTube and got a small following and started teaching online, uh, online coaching. And then this became more and more my, my work. You know, uh, at first it was just working in China and then a little bit of coaching and now it's, it's the opposite end of the spectrum. Okay, so now, well, like, so when you say you were working in China, was that also in the physical realm or was that outside of it? I was, I was teaching movement classes, but that wasn't until later on. When I first got there, I was teaching English language. That was the easiest one to get into. And so when you go back there, is that, are you sort of like full-time now into the movement thing? And when you go back there, you'll be looking to do that sort of full-time or what's the plan? Exactly. That's my plan. So I've been in contact with uh, a bunch of people in a city called Shenzhen, which is close to where I live now. Uh, right now I live in Guangzhou and uh, it's kind of like right, right next to it. You can take a train there or, or a bus. Uh, it's not very difficult. And that's a big city. Uh, I guess you can compare it to something like New York or something. And I've been in contact with a bunch of gyms there uh, that teach, you know, CrossFit or yoga because there's no real movement gym there. Mm. And um, trying to show them my philosophy and, and seeing if they would be open to uh, either ho holding a workshop or group classes. And, and my eventual goal is to have group classes down there that I can teach in either Chinese or English and have uh, a mix of the culture so we can have um, people that are from the foreign land in China t taking the classes and native Chinese classes, ch Chinese people in the classes. And in China, from your experience, what is the physical culture like there? Because I think from outside in, we always see, you know, Chinese weightlifting is very famous. Martial arts is very famous. But when with your time that you spent there, seeing what you've seen, just with ordinary people as well, w what is it like? It really depends on who you're talking about. So I would say there's a split between when you're 40 years old and older, and then the younger, uh, younger than 40. So the the younger than 40 crowd um, typically is interested in Western disciplines like yoga, CrossFit, bodybuilding. Uh, they are they are very into this. When I was training in in the gym, I would see uh, what is it called? When you're on the bike, what is that called? Cycling classes. Is that what that's called? When you're like uh, <laughs> spin, on the spin, bike, yeah, spinning, spinning, yeah. I saw spinning classes, yoga classes, bodybuilders. Um, I didn't see much powerlifting, but I'm sure there's a lot because uh, Olympic lifting is is very good in China. Like their their team is very good, um, and of course we have the the normal ping pong and, and badminton and things like that. A lot of people play, uh, but the older generation. Do not do they do not do this yoga crossfit at all uh, they I don't think they really see a good I don't know maybe it's a traditional mindset they are really into I think a play culture 
So what I really liked, uh, I would go to the park every day because I lived right next to the park and I would do my sessions there. And every day I would see um, retired people, probably 60, 70, 50 years old around that age. And they're playing in the park. They're talking with their friends. They're uh, like hitting themselves against a tree. They're doing like Qigong work. They're, uh, they're playing this, uh, it's, it's called Dianzi. It's like hacky sack. It's like a Chinese hacky sack almost. And they're playing that with friends. They're conversing. They're doing calligraphy on the ground. So I really enjoyed the physical culture from the older generation and the younger generation. I just saw a very similar thing to what I would see in America. So I, I tried to talk with those, with those older, that older generation as much as I could and learn as much as I could from them. And there's still a lot that I can learn from, from them about that. And I think that's a really nice sight when you go to the park and then you see like a lot of activity, physical activity done in that way, especially with that playful character. Sometimes, uh, I mean, it might be different in Australia, but you, you might go to a park and there'll be like nobody there <laughs> or, or just, uh, or just walking, you know, but that, that, uh, more varied activity base, um, from my time in China, I remember very fondly there. And I, I wanted to ask you about the dancing. Do you know anything about this dancing culture? Because when I was there, like a lot of them, they have this, uh, for those who are, who are listening, like they just put a loudspeaker in the middle of like even just a concrete sort of uh, park. And then they have a, a dance troupe of sometimes up to 50 people. I thought, I've never seen anything like it. <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy. The only thing that really gets annoying is the music that they play. If they played better music, I would I would like it much better. They they usually t- play like a techno or like some type of almost dubstep like music and mm. but the dancing is awesome. They they get together and you, like you said 40 50 people and they're just uh doing this this you know, not very difficult moves in dance, but they're dancing together for hours on end and it's usually the older generation that's doing it. You won't really see a lot of younger people doing it, uh, but they do it just about every night and it doesn't matter where they are in the park next to the, the apartment building. They just find an open spot and they, and they go for hours. And uh, I, I love seeing that because I never see that in America. Like you, like you said, in uh, Australia, it's kind of the same here where I am in America, at least. You go to the park, uh, it's a giant uh, grass field, it's beautiful and no one's there. I'm the only person there or, or people are playing on the playground, maybe kids playing on the playground or people walking. But beyond that, you don't really see much. Mm. And the Tao Wei, like why this name? Because I don't know too much about Tao. So I double checked, I looked it up again and the Tao means like way. So it, it's almost like the way of the way. Yeah, a lot of people comment this on my video, but if you look at the Chinese character, the, the Tao Wei is actually uh, from my Chinese name. My Chinese name, name is Tao Lian. So that first Tao is like my surname in Chinese. Oh. So if you take the Tao Wei, it's more like the Antonio Wei, the, the Mai Wei. Uh, so that's that's the idea behind it. And I also wanted to have a faint a faint uh, connection to Taoism or Taoism. So that's why I, I chose, okay, that's that's probably a good name for my channel because I do have some influences there. And there's my cat. <laughs> <laughs> What's your cat's name? Uh, this one's pumpkin. We have two. Ah, very cute. And from your experience over there with, uh, uh, I guess you're exposed to all these like Eastern practices as, as well. Um, yeah. What have you sought out or what have you learned during your time over in China from whether it be physical culture or even just general sort of Eastern practices that have, uh, that you've gained a lot of benefit from? Yeah. So the the main thing that I studied there was Kung Fu. And I went to uh, one of the, 
I would say one of the best places to learn, uh, which is in uh, Hubei province, which is basically in the middle of China. And there's a mountain there called the Wudang Mountain. And that's where you study Chinese if, or study Kung Fu. Um, there's, there's another place you can go, which is the Shaolin. And I think most people know Shaolin. And Wudang is a little bit more, um, not so broad. You know, people don't really think of Wudang Kung Fu. They think of Shaolin Kung Fu. But they're both very, very famous. And they're both very, very old in tradition. So as a part of physical culture, I learned a lot there. Um, and then philosophy and teaching, I learned a lot about Eastern teaching from them as well. Like the, the, the way that they teach uh, in China and the way that they teach in, uh, for example, America is, is very different. They are very straightforward. They kind of throw you in the fire and watch you burn and see if you, you come back. They don't, uh, they don't sugarcoat anything. They don't uh, really have a, a good progression system. Like in America, we're, we want this from point A to point Z. We have everything in between. But in China, you go straight to point X, you know, and they see, <laughs> are you going to survive or not? And um, in some capacity, I like that idea, but I don't always teach like that. Um, you have to pick what you teach in, in that Eastern philosophy, because I think everything will end up getting some people injured. It will take some people out of the game. Uh, so I kind of mix my teaching style with the, with the Western and the Eastern philosophy from what I learned there. That's really interesting. I think just presenting it as, as it is because you are right with the Western way. It's almost like a very big focus on the process, right? Like what's the process? Who's got the best process? That's almost how you judge the teachers, right? Um, yeah. And we've got this whole thing now separating what's a good practitioner may not be a good teacher as well. And maybe that's defined by their process as well. But with these martial arts schools, I'm guessing when you go there, there are actually like a lot of great practitioners, right? Even though they might just show point X, like, why do you think that is that way? I think uh, it has to do with the people that are good have been there for a long time and they stayed. And the people that were, did not like the way that the teaching happened or they just couldn't stay for very long are gone. So you don't really see those students that did not benefit from it. Cause I'm sure that there are a lot of students that did not benefit from the process from the process, but the ones that have stayed for a year, two years, they are amazing. And they've only been practicing for a year or two, but you have to, you have to also think they're practicing eight hours a day, every single day. So it's different than if we're taking jujitsu uh, five times a week for an hour, as opposed to taking jujitsu six times a week, six days a week for eight hours a day, you know, you're going to mm -hmm. learn a lot uh, and you're going to be very, it's going to be very easy for you to, to burn out mentally and physically. So you really have to be on top of your recovery. Um, and you have to really be asking your teachers all of the questions when you're there. And that's what I saw. The long-term students, they ask the questions, they do the work, they get there early, they're not late, uh, they eat well, they sleep well, and um, they're able to recover very well. And was it easy for you as a foreigner just to go to this school and be like, I want to I take part? No, it was not very easy because uh, one, it's in the middle of China. So uh, I had to take, I think, three trains to get there and then a taxi once I got off the last train. Uh, and you, you just have to switch a lot. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit difficult to get there geographically. And then once you are there, uh, I contacted them beforehand. So I basically did my research on Chinese social media and found what are some of the schools in the area. And I contacted the masters in the school directly. And I was able to connect with them and ask them, can I see uh, what you can do? Can I see what your students can do? And they were 
more than happy to share that information. And then they gave me, uh, and then that gave me a good idea of what I wanted to see. And the one school that I ended up going with, I went with because the students and the master uh, looked amazing. I think all of the masters and students that I saw looked amazing, but for some reason, the school that I went with just resonated with me, the way that we connected, the way that we talked, uh, and I ended up going with them. And they even um, prepared, like we got in to the, to the place, to the Kung Fu place at about midnight, and everybody there sleeps at nine or 10 because they're waking up at, at five to train. Um, and they had a person stay up for us and guide us into the room and explain things to us. And they said, oh, you can even sleep in tomorrow. You don't have to come to morning practice. But of course, we came to morning practice anyway. <laughs> uh, and uh, it was very welcoming society, but very, very strict. I was very conscious of everything that I was doing. Like I, I wanted to make sure I wasn't disrespecting at all. And I was really in the practice. And how did the practice look? Because you mentioned it's eight hours a day. So is it almost like a, you stay and you live on the campus as well? And that's like your whole life. You, you enter this Kung Fu school and that's what it is? Exactly. Yeah. So you, you have a room inside the, the, I guess you can call it the campus. And they have two different campuses with the school that I was at. We were at what's called the old school. So they were transitioning everybody to the new school. But what I liked about the old school was we had two big training spots. The first training spot was right in front of where you lived. And it's like a courtyard. Like if you imagine a Chinese courtyard in your head, it was probably more or less like that. And then the second training spot was about a five, 10 minute walk to uh, just north of us. And it was a small temple. Uh, and we trained inside the temple. The, the only bad thing about that is when it gets, it can get crowded in the temple because it's a public space. So we would only train there in the morning when no one was there. And then in the afternoon, we usually train in the courtyard right outside of our, our uh, place of living. And what are some of maybe the, the ideas or concepts that you took from the physical practice side of it during that time? I think the main thing uh, beyond learning the Kung Fu itself, the main thing that I saw was the way in teaching that I described earlier, but I also was very interested in the way that they, de they developed um, mobility because uh, they have in, in the Wushu culture, they have head to toe. Everybody has head to toe. You need to, they have full splits. They have the, the front split, the middle split. They have uh, this, this low position called the Pubu, which is basically like a half split, like a Cossack type squat. Um, and those are amazingly developed. And if you see the process, it's that throw into the fire and watch you burn. Like you are, you are wushu bouncing from day one. And uh, I've, I saw some people get injured from that. And then I saw some people benefit from it and get chin to toe, uh, nose to toe. And we always had the masters, either, either the master himself or the master's family, just demonstrate uh, cold. Like they would touch their, uh, their chin to their toe cold. Uh, they would go into middle split cold and they could do that all their life. And I think that the, one of the big reasons why they could do that is because they were training since they were five years old and they have that, that range. And then some of the uh, Westerners that were there also had that level of flexibility and they started when they were 20, 25, 30, some of them. So that was also very impressive to see. It's not a method that I use with my students because I think it's too aggressive, but it was interesting to see the way that they, that they uh, went about it. I've seen some of these wushu demonstrations and yeah, how they can just do almost like yeah, chin to toe, just cold. I find it absolutely mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is, it is impressive. 
And uh, we, we had a lot of, uh, at the time that I went, we went in January and it's in the middle of China and January was super cold, like negative two degrees every day. Um, and often the electricity would go out so we wouldn't have heating. Uh, and it's, it's kind of this thing that you just have to deal with. You know, that's, that's the way of life. Sometimes the electricity goes out. Sometimes you don't have um, heating and you just wear more clothes. You, you deal with it and you do it and you, you don't complain. You go to training. Training's the same. If it's raining, it's snowing. You're, you're outside, you're training. And um, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see. But um, in, in, in America, especially, I think a lot of people have this like, Kung Fu dream where they want to go off to China or, or, or train in a different country and they want to really dedicate themselves and train eight hours a day and eat the local food and, and don't eat sugar, don't eat processed foods. And then when they get there, they realize this is hard. You know, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, and that's what I found when I went there and the coaches and the teachers also uh, vocalized this. They said, we have a lot of students come thinking that this is one thing and uh, they start training and they realize, hey, this is hard. Maybe I get injured. Maybe uh, I, I don't want to wake up at five. Maybe uh, I want to skip this hour meditation. And then they just stop. And they originally wanted to train for one year. They leave after a month. And that's what they said was uh, very common, was people to come with this idea of what uh, it, it's going to feel like. And then they do it. And it's, it's not that same feeling that they had in their mind. And what were you searching for at the time? And what led you... Um, are you still training with them or did, did you depart from that school? No, I departed from that school because I don't live in that area, but uh, I was actually supposed to go back um, in July and I was going to stay for three months, but because of the pandemic, I wasn't able to go. Uh, but hopefully uh, next summer or next winter, I'll be able to go back and train for a few months with them. Um, but uh, I originally went because I am in China and they are known for Kung Fu and they can teach Kung Fu. So I wanted to see how do they teach and what do they teach? And I was blown away with what I saw just even from the students that had been there a year or two and also from the masters that had been training for 20, 30, 40 years and seeing what they can do. Uh, there, there's a bunch of videos you can look up online and you can be amazed at the video, but just seeing it in person is, is something new. Yeah, I think it's always a little bit like when you see those videos, you're like, that, that, can't, be, that can't be right. I, I think the other day I was... I was watching one of the monks. I think he did a stolter and he was on just two, two fingertips, like on each hand. And I was like, <laughs> and I just, I just had to laugh. I was like, that can't be real, but, but it was. And I can only imagine seeing it in person would, yeah, just absolutely stun you. So. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And the, the, the teaching that they have there is, is very traditional. Now that you, now that you bring it up, like um, there's, this, uh, there's this Kung Fu form. It's, it's an ancient form called uh, Bagua Zhang. And basically, the Bagua is the, um, the circular yin and yang. Um, and the form is a, a circular form that you walk around the, the yin and yang or you walk around a circle. And the first uh, week or two of training it, you are walking in a circle for hours a day. And that's all you're doing. And you're, you're learning to walk in the circle. You're learning how to step. And you're learning how to navigate the circle within, those, uh, within that eight hours of training, which is... Uh, I think if, if you brought that here, a lot of people would, would just give up after, you know, 10 minutes of walking around. And do you still practice a lot of these uh, kung, kung fu practices at the moment? Yeah, uh, I, I don't. It's not my main focus right now, but I do. Uh, I learned one form. Uh, you learn about a form a month uh, because they really want to break it down and teach you the, the intricacies. And I learned something called Dragon Fist. 
So I practice uh, the basics from that very often. And then I practice the full form every once in a while to, to get the details down. Uh, but the main thing that I practice from there is the, the teaching philosophy and um, some of the ways that they teach the kicks. And uh, I really got a lot out of their, their stretching protocol from the kick perspective. Mm, so that's something that you pass on to your students? Yes, yes. But I only teach that in person right now because uh, I don't think I'm very good at uh, showing that part online just yet. Uh, I want to wait until I have it very well, very good in person, and then I'll start to integrate it with my online students as well. Mm. And how about your practice at the moment? What does that sort of look like? And what do you, yeah, wh what keeps you going? Like, what are you searching for in your practice? Uh, that, that's a good question. I'll start with the easier one, which is what I'm doing. Uh, I'm, I'm under Ido Portel right now on uh, his online coaching. And I train about five to six hours a day, six days a week. So I have one rest day where, where it allows me to play and, and um, really test what, what, I, what I can do. Uh, the most amount of time is spent on internal practices right now uh, with something that you may have heard of called water quality. I'm spending a lot of time with water quality, but I'm also spending a lot of time with environmental practices uh, similar to parkour, uh, balancing on rails, uh, climb ups on walls, jumping, things like that. And I'm finding a lot of enjoyment from that because uh, I actually started, I don't want to say I started my movement background, but I started in parkour a long time ago. Uh, and that's what got me interested in Ido Portel was, was through the parkour. And then I stopped doing parkour and started doing hand balancing and other things. And now to be back to it with, with the process is a very interesting thing. And I'm, I'm loving the practice. Mm. And how does that process compare now? We were talking about the Kung Fu thing, you know, you just being thrown at it compared to what you're experiencing at the moment. It's, it's, very, it's you, you are not thrown in it uh, as aggressively. It's, it's definitely a step-by-step -step process that um, anybody can benefit from. I, I, I want to not say anybody, but I think anybody can really benefit from the process that they give. Um, and it's, it's not throw you in the fire. It's more, uh, let's, let's start at step here and then let's slowly progress this way. Hmm. And going back to that harder question, what are you searching for in your practice? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, my, my, uh, original, uh, the original reason I came into, I guess the movement world was to learn how to do a one arm handstand was to learn how to do a one arm chin up was to learn how to do handstand pushups. And after I got there, I was kind of left, well, with like, well, what now? You know, I could, I could do a longer one-arm handstand hold. I could learn more shapes. I could learn a different arm position. I could get stronger. I could do more one-arm chin-ups. I could do more handstand push-ups. But it just seemed like uh, a line that I did not want to take. And then um, I started to reach out to, to see what I really wanted. And I think that's when I went to go study Kung Fu and, and really see, um, okay, I'm not strength training the way that I was. I'm doing no hand balancing work, yet I'm able to train eight hours a day. And that was something that really, ch I don't want to say changed my mind, but the majority of my time at that time was hand balancing, strength work, mobility. And then I go to doing none of that and just training Kung Fu. And then I see this whole different side of, wow, there's a lot that I can go into and I have this short amount of time in my life to really dedicate the time. So let's see what I can learn. 
And it didn't necessarily have to be Kung Fu, uh, but um, I knew I needed to learn something. I didn't want to continue to get stronger and uh, longer hand balancing holds, which, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot to benefit from that as well. But I, I wanted to have a broader uh, repertoire. I wanted to have more options. Mm, it's sounding like you have this curiosity, right? To look beyond maybe just going uh, like complexity through intensity, but from from that broader perspective, which I think draws in a lot of people looking into you know this this movement culture um, business that is now growing. And mm. I wanted to ask you more about these uh, internal arts that you're saying that you have uh, quite a big focus on. So yeah, you mentioned sort of water quality. Maybe could you expand a little bit more on what your practicing at the moment and what you're noticing yeah so um i guess i'm very new at this at this art so i don't want to say too much and then give misinformation but the basic thing that i have learned and have been thinking about very out uh, just during the day is how do i stand because the the water quality the movement quality starts with simply standing how do you stand and i've been noticing when i cut vegetables when i crack an egg I'm leaning on that right side. I'm, I'm uh, leaning towards my shoulders are leaning down or I'm twisted a little bit. Why am I twisted? When I sit, even when I'm sitting right now, my right leg is in front and my left leg is tucked in. Why am I doing that? And I'm trying to be more even through my feet and having full connection and really thinking, how do I stand? How do I walk? This very basic thing that we do every day that we don't really think about. Um, that's, the, that's the basic thing that I have gained from it so far. Um, but I'm, I'm, I know that there's a lot more that I'll be gaining from it as well. And the, the movement quality practice, this, this practice takes about a full hour. So you're, you're standing, uh, with minimal movement most of the time. And there's some movement in the arm, some movement in the leg, but it's very soft. It's very slow. And I think I'm gaining a lot of patience and a lot of, um, dedicating myself to the process with this small part of the practice. I can see how this is a very powerful observation practice, right? And then it almost leads to this noticing and observing when you're not just like in, in training mode, because you're always normally in one of these postures, sitting, standing, walking. And then I guess if you give yourself these mental cues to notice these, these patterns of what you're doing there, then yeah, I don't know if it's like you're training all the time or you're just like noticing all the time. Yeah, that's what I call that's what I call a life practice. When when you're when you're doing things, it's, it's I wouldn't call it training all the time because you're not training, but you are squatting down to to pick up something. You are standing evenly. You are hanging when you see a tree branch, and this is something that I try to teach to all of my students, whether you're online or in person. This this life practice of bringing movement back into your life and not necessarily having only the hour-long hand balancing session or the hour-long strength session you you bring it really into your life and this brings it to the people around you as well like uh my, my mother my brothers they, they squat with me they hang with me they uh when they're outside uh like like uh just reading a book they'll squat down for five seconds and this is a big big thing that i'm very proud of and i don't i think sub uh subconsciously they are doing it i don't tell them oh you need to squat down now you know they just, they see me do it and they they copy like uh like almost like uh the way the way child the way children copy their parents i'm i'm doing the opposite where my mom is copying copying me which is a interesting thing to see 
I think it's almost like you're showing them that there's a different way of doing it, right? And then that probably just reminds what we know to be almost true that we could just do that. And maybe then they're going, ah, oh, like maybe I, I, I can just do that. But that's, yeah, that's, that's really nice to hear, man. And I wanted to ask about from the student side, because uh, you mentioned you do like quite a lot of online coaching now and then in person when students come to you, like how do they express what they're looking for in their practice and their goals? What do you normally hear? Uh, so I hear two things usually. The first one is uh, a lot of strength and hand balancing goals. Like I want to learn one arm handstand. I want to learn uh, a muscle up. I want to learn something like that. So it's usually uh, towards the gymnastic strengths side and the hand balancing side. Uh, the second thing that I see is they have no idea what they want. They need direction and they want to learn all that I have to give them. And both I am more than happy to, to give. Uh, and I think that the people that first come with the gymnastic strength and the hand balancing, if they stay with me long enough, they change their mind into, hey, I want to learn uh, some of this internal practice. I want to learn how to move my spine. I want to learn uh, how to move on the ground. And then I slowly get them in there. And that's kind of how I was brought into the practice. I did not, if, if you told me 10 years ago that I would be standing for an hour outside every day, I would say, no, I'm not. That's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's a waste of time. I'm not going to do that. But now come to today, that's what I'm doing. And I'm really enjoying it. So the, it, it, you can't bring people into it, mo a lot of people into it directly, or they're just going to say, this is boring. I don't want to do this. This is not interesting. So I um, orientate the practice around their interests, but at the same time, I give them things that I think is important. So a person that comes to me with gymnastic strength, I want to learn a muscle up. I will happily program a muscle up, but guess what? You're going to get 20 minutes of spinal work as well. And uh, slowly we, we can develop that a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And then the questions start to come out. Why am I doing spinal work? Why, why am I sitting down in, in meditation and focusing on my breath for 10 minutes? Why am I doing this? And this is where the interests start. And some people, develop this interest and some people say uh this is still very boring <laughs> and how about for those people that come to you and just go i want to learn everything what's your process in terms of exposing them to everything if that can be possible yeah yeah it's very it's very difficult when, when they say everything they just mean everything that i have to offer at the time so uh it's it's definitely not everything um but i start with uh I try to get them to uh, speak about some goals that they have short term and long term. I look at that and then I give, I ask them how much are you willing to dedicate uh, per week to this practice? And then based on those two, I can create a pretty good program uh, around their goal goals and around their time. But at the same time, I'm giving them what I want to give them. Uh, so I wouldn't start off by giving you an hour of seated meditation. I start very simple. Let's do five minutes. Okay. Five minutes and then go from there. I don't give you 30 minutes of spinal work. Let's start 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and then, you know, we'll go up from there. So I, I am, I'm very forgiving, I think. And I, I start very slow and then I add on, add on, add on. And the students that have with, are with me for a long time, I bet you, they would, they would tell you um, what I'm doing now, I would never have wanted to do on day one, but now I love it. This is my favorite part of the practice. I guess that's very different to what you experienced in the Kung Fu school, right? Like <laughs> yes. yes, when, when, 
when I was in the Kung Fu school, the first horse dance, the Mabu, the first horse dance that I did was uh, get down, do the horse dance. And then <laughs> you go down and do the horse dance. But there's so many details within the horse dance that you can develop. So as we went along, they would slowly tell us these details like, oh, rotate the hip this way. The feet uh, you can have here, here, the head this way. Um, and, but the first day and the first week, you're just doing the horse stance. You're just squatting down with a wide stance, keeping the uh, flat thigh and they would come around and they would sit on your thigh. They <laughs> would uh, play with you. They'd hit you on the head, you know? And, uh, I think there's a lot of benefit from that, but I don't teach the horse stance that way. Uh, but I think there is, there is benefit from that, uh, that more playful, just do it, you know? I think they're probably testing something else of your qualities, you know, are you going to make it through that first week to then get the good stuff afterwards? For sure. For sure. Yeah. And from what you see with students coming into you and maybe other sort of practitioners out there that you've uh, interacted with, what, what do you think are some of maybe the most un misunderstood concepts of movement training uh, when, when people are just uh, coming into it? That's an interesting question. Uh, one that I have to think about. I think um, I'll give you an example. So at the beginning of this year, uh, I had already originally planned to come to America before the pandemic happened. And then while I was here, it happened. But I came to visit family and I was teaching two workshops at the time. And the one person that contacted me for the workshop wanted a mobility workshop. And I said, okay, I can do mobility workshop. Uh, are there any specific things that you want to go over? And then she told me, uh, I want all of it. I want the locomotion. I want the strength. I want this and that. And I was like, oh, you mean, okay, so you don't mean mobility only. And I think that people um, in, in a certain area use a word incorrectly uh, because they've seen other people use this word with, with something else. Like if, if someone's doing locomotion, oh, I'm working on my mobility. Okay, this is mobility. So this is what I want to learn. So I think that's a big misconception is what is movement? And it's, it's a very broad thing. Um, it's not just the strength. It's not just the hand balancing. Like with me in my area here, uh, I, had, I started a small community before I went to China um, three, four years ago. And at that time, I was mainly teaching handstand. I was mainly teaching strength. So when I told people that I teach movement, they thought that movement was strength and hand balancing. This was my fault because I did not teach a movement perspective at that time. I was teaching strength and hand balancing perspective. And then I um, uh, just gave misinformation, if you will, of what the, the movement practice was. And now when people come to me, they think that they're going to learn strength and handstand. And then it's something completely different. Like the, the last phase that we did with uh, my group uh, in person, we did no strength and no hand balancing. We had a little bit of that in the, in the locomotion, but we, it was not the focus at all. And we were training three, three days a week, an hour and a half, and then they had homework on top of that. So uh, they, I think they learned a different perspective of, oh, we can be jumping, we can be uh, moving our bodies this way or that way. And uh, I think that's the biggest misconception is, is what is a movement practice? Is it strength? Is it handstand? Is it locomotion? Um, that's a very that's the thing that takes a while to, to understand. And I don't fully understand it. Yeah. Because sometimes I think if you separate it out into these separate buckets, I sometimes always question as well, like what makes it not the fact that maybe we're just doing calisthenics and hand balancing and a bit of dance 
because maybe it is that, but then what makes it then movement? That, that is an interesting question. I think it's when, when you separate it, I, I try to talk to the talk about this point to my group. Uh, actually, we were talking about the difference between a movement practice and a cross training practice. And I was, I was talking about if you go rock climb on Monday and jujitsu class on Tuesday and dance on Wednesday, this is not a movement practice. This is a cross training practice. You are going into the discipline and not taking from that discipline into anything broader. You are taking it and, and specializing in it and not taking any of the concepts. So I think taking concepts from the different arts and putting it together into your own unique blend is your own practice. Uh, not everybody will have Kung Fu in there. Not everybody will have handstand. Not everybody will have uh, gymnastic strength. But putting, putting um, different uh, hats on at different times is, is an important part, I think. Mm. And what have been some of maybe the biggest mistakes you've made in your training in the past? Oh, too many, too many. <laughs> uh, maybe I, I can start when I first, first started. There's a, there's a lot. Um, I would say one of the biggest mistakes I did was not recording my sessions. And I don't mean filming. I mean recording in a journal because um, when we have progress, it needs to be measured in some capacity. So let's say I'm learning how to do a handstand. And uh, this, this happens with my online students. And I, I try to tell them this as well. Let's say you're doing chest to wall handstand and you can hold for about 40 seconds and you have five sets. And you uh, don't use a metronome, you don't use a timer, you just uh, do it in your own head and you don't record anything. So when, you, um, when I ask you how much can you do, you say, oh, between uh, 40 and 50 seconds. Well, between 40 and 50 seconds is a big difference. If we're going to make progress, let's do 40 seconds for all the sets. Then the next session, try to do 41, then 42. Then getting to 60 or 90 seconds in a chest to wall handstand is easy peasy. You just wait the time. You just put in the time and you're able to get there. But if you're going, oh, I can do 40 to 60 seconds, 40 to 50 seconds, that jump of 10 seconds is too much. That's, that's, that's like a 10%, 5% jump in, in there. And you're never going to, to reach that goal. So I would say write down every session, write down the details and try to um, be as accurate as you can. I definitely did not do that until five years later into my practice. And I, I, I have a lot of benefit from that. And I wish I could look at my older journals from 10 years ago that do not exist. Um, and then the, the second one, uh, the biggest mistake that I made was being too afraid to show my practice. And again, I don't mean filming here. I mean, training outside. All of my training when I first started was done in my room, in my house, in a doorway pull-up bar because I was embarrassed. You know, I, I, could not, I could not do a muscle up. I could do maybe two, three chin-ups and I didn't want to go outside and have people watch me while I was doing this thing. What is he doing? He's setting up rings. What is he doing? He's uh, in a handstand. And I felt really embarrassed. And then um, on the Movement Culture Facebook group, I saw something that Summerall Black posted um, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was somewhere along the lines of don't be afraid to, to do things in public. And for some reason that really resonated with me. And from then on, I was always training outside and people would stare at me and I would get embarrassed or get um, whatever it is. And I just learned to deal with it over time. And now uh, I can do spinal work outside. I can do the weirdest thing possible outside and people are staring at me and I don't care. I think that's another great quality 
that probably comes aside from this practice, right? Because then you just become more self-confident to be who you are. And I see what you mentioned there is two sides of confrontation. There's that confrontation with yourself, probably with the journal writing, because it's very confronting to then recognize actually how much work that you or capacity that, that, that you do have. And I think it takes a while to mature to this phase to then be like, okay, like I, I can face myself and my ability and this is where I'm at. And then that second one with that outside in some person that you don't know potentially like judging you because you're doing this weird spinal wave. Right. But, uh, I really like that, that you took it to heart from, from this cue as well to, to take the practice public because, it's a different experience I feel than if you're just in at, at home in, in some room, it's uh yeah, you definitely get a lot more out of it. 100%. And when you're, when you're training outside, that's when you get the most amount of interest because people are actually seeing what you're doing. So that's when I get the questions. I've gotten some private students from just training outside and then being, Hey, what, what are you doing? Can you, can you help me to learn this, whatever, whatever. So it, it gives you a lot of questions. And oftentimes, some of the questions that I get from, from those people are some questions that I wouldn't get from somebody that's inside. And then I really have to think, hmm, what is the answer to that question? I don't know. Okay, sorry, I don't know. I will get back to you later if I see you again, you know. <laughs> and you mentioned how you've spent uh, a bit of time in the strengths perspective, maybe like the body weight strengths perspective, like from before you went to China and then that still carries through. Uh, in terms of that, uh, do you think, oh, what in your mind uh, are ones that are worth like holding up to pursue? Like I always think of, you know, Ido in the earlier days, he had this like basics concept and there were like guys doing stolders, that sort of thing. Um, from your experience, do you have anything like that where you like to aim people towards or like a, yeah, a sort of, I don't want to say best of the best, but yeah, it kind of gets towards that idea if you know what I mean. No. Yeah. I know what you mean. Um, I definitely steer people in the, in the direction of the upper body basics. So being able to handstand push up and stolder press and, um, uh, pull with one arm and things like this. But, uh, I also understand that people do not always need this. So, I look at what, what are you, what is your goal? You know, not necessarily your goal internally, but what do you do outside of this? If you are mainly rock climbing and you're coming to me from strength, okay, we're going to build front lever and one arm chin up, but somebody that is doing jujitsu, maybe they don't need a one arm chin up. They definitely do not need a one arm chin up to, to, um, thrive in jujitsu. So I really see what a person's, um, base idea is and I and I put them in that direction. So not everybody wants the movement perspective. Some people want to train jujitsu now uh, every day. Some people want to get better at rock climbing now and maybe they'll change their mind later, but I steer them in that direction of developing strength towards their strength, but also addressing their weaknesses. Uh, when I first started in uh, the strength world, I was very much a body weight guy and I uh, had an ego to always train body weight body weight legs, body weight upper body, and anybody that trained weight was wrong. And I was always right to train body weight. And you know what happened? I had the skinniest legs in the world. I couldn't squat and I got knee injuries because I couldn't handle load with my legs and I couldn't even resting squat. I was, I was very weak in the lower body, but my upper body got strong, you know? So uh, after I, basically after I got an injury to my knee, I realized 
hey, this, this area probably needs a little bit more than just body weight to, to really get strength in that, in that area. So I, I changed my perspective then. But at that time, I was very much the body weight guy and I wouldn't do anything else besides body weight. But now I see the benefit be, between weight and, and body weight when it comes to strength training. It's so funny sometimes with these cultures where they draw lines like that, like because maybe there's that label of calisthenics. Then if, if, if you're the calisthenics or body weight, then you can't go to the other dark side because that's, that's who you are. I always have to have to have a laugh, right? Because it's all, I mean. Yeah. The, the, we, the other interesting thing that I've heard is some people won't do what I'm teaching them because of their religious background. So I would have them meditate and they'd say, oh, I can't meditate because of my religious background. And I'm, I'm trying to see it from their perspective. But in, in, in my idea, meditation has nothing to do with religion. It doesn't matter what religion you are. You can sit in silence for five minutes. There, there's no, I'm not praying to any God or gods. I'm just sitting, you know, there's, there's no, there's, there's no religious background. So I think some people really separate um, a word based on something that they do and they need to see that there's there's really no separation they're all together mm. yeah i think communication is really this uh this wonderful art right like that can that can enable us to do many beautiful things but it can also prevent us from doing many beautiful things as well which mm. is the other the other dark side but um other than maybe strength and mobility which is you know quite quite, quite well known what other attributes do you look at developing within yourself and your students? Uh, with, my, with myself, it's, it's different than my students because what I'm working on now, I won't teach uh, online or group or in person because I don't know it well enough. Um, most of the things that I'm learning right now, I, I'm not gonna teach for another year or two years when I, when I understand it a little bit better. So right now, like I said, I'm, I'm getting into the, the water quality, the movement quality, I'm um, doing some parkour practices and rail work, and um, I'm having a lot of enjoyment here. With my students, uh, beyond the strength, the mobility and the hand balancing, we're also doing locomotion and we're also doing spine work as well and meditation. Those are the, the six areas I would say that I teach uh, the vast majority of people. Mm. And in terms of like, do you look at through the perspective of maybe attributes as well? Maybe if it's rhythm or coordination, that, that sort of thing, do you, do you determine it like that? Or do you sort of define these as, as the practices as that? And then those attributes come from those, those practices? You, you definitely get some rhythm, some coordination from, from doing different things. Um, but there is a coordination side where you only work the coordination. There is a rhythm side where you only work the rhythm. Um, the, the coordination and the rhythm I do teach, but I only teach it in person pretty much. Uh, I do teach it to a small number of, of my, of my long-term uh, online students, um, but this is something that I'm not um, 100%, not 100%. This is something that I've been working on myself, so I don't want to teach it to a lot of people just yet because I'm still understanding it myself. Mm. So... What does that sort of process look like from when you practice it as a practitioner, then you've mentioned there's, uh, there's some stage where you feel uncomfortable about teaching it online and there's, there's like teaching it in person. Maybe could you, could you explain a little bit about how you found uh, your approach to then from learning it to then being comfortable to teaching it via any medium? Yeah, there's, there's no real good answer here. Uh, I have, because 
for me, I'm, I'm never satisfied with, with where I'm at. Maybe I'm happy with the process, but I'm not satisfied. I, I look at it in terms of time spent and, and questions answered and the, the broader perspective. So if I've spent two, three years developing an area and I've asked a lot of questions about it and gotten a lot of information, uh, maybe don't want to say information, but I've gotten good, mm, good benefit from it. And I understand a lot of the, the, the difficulties that the students will have. This is very important. When, when I program for people, I, I encourage questions and the questions come. And if you don't go through that process, you won't have a good answer. And that's something that I, uh, really do not want to do. So I need to go through the process myself in order to teach it. So I can already have gone through all the difficulties that my students will probably go through and I can get around that. So that's kind of the line that I see um, in, in the amount of time spent, the amount of, um, the amount of things that I've learned, the amount of questions that have been answered and the amount of difficulties that I've had. If I get that to a good level, then I'm comfortable teaching it. And I will always start by teaching it in person seeing um, where it goes wrong, where it goes right, and then I will teach it online. And with the concept of a daily practice, let's say if you are really low on time, low on energy for whatever reason, maybe you're, I don't know, moving house like I've done recently or taking a plane somewhere, what's a practice that you would prioritize over anything else to get done as a daily minimum? I would say the, the biggest things are the spine, squatting, and hanging. If you can get uh, a good amount of this in throughout the day, you, you are going to be, your, your body is going to be feeling good. Um, there's, there's not like a set exercise or set, um, you should be doing this for this amount, or you should do spinal work for this amount. If you're getting a little bit here and there, that's what I really encourage people to do. This idea of movement snacks, of, of squatting and hanging and, and moving the spine as much as you can throughout the day is going to be beneficial. And it's something that you can do anywhere. If you're moving house, you have, uh, you, you have a time where you can squat down. You have time where you can move the spine. And it's going to be difficult. You, you might not want to do it, but you need to force yourself to do it in order to develop these habits. Mm, yeah, I really like the concept of movement snack. And it's funny because I think, especially on the hanging, once you get really hooked and addicted on the hanging, you're always looking for places where you're going, oh, maybe I can you know, have, a, have a little bit of a hang here, whether it's a tree or, or someplace maybe you shouldn't be putting your weight on, but you're like, oh, I just need to stretch out for a little bit. Uh, yeah, I've become a bit of a hanging addict, I think. No, yeah, you definitely develop this. The same with the squatting. If you go through uh, Ido's 30-day uh, 30, 30 challenge for hanging or squatting, you will definitely develop that itch for a squat like it, it feels very similar to um a craving for for food you know you really crave to squat down right now you need to compress or you need to expand it's it's a very interesting thing and you look at the world differently like you like you said you look for places to hang like for me right now i'm doing a lot of rail bouncing so when we're walking around or driving around i will be constantly looking for <laughs> rails and oh my gosh that's a nice one if i'm watching tv too i will be looking at the tv and being oh that's a nice rail i wish i lived there you know i wish i was next to that that's that, that's good so you you really look at the world differently like a person um could be standing by your dream wall your dream floor your dream rail and never realize it but if you were there you would oh my gosh that floor is so nice to do floor work or locomotion and <laughs> yeah you wish you lived there 
Uh, it's, that's uh, another one of the benefits of movement practice is you get the eagle eyes for, for spots, which are, yeah, a great thing is, you know, when you go outside as well, they're normally for free, which is great. But um, yeah. I want to get stuck into the, the Edo world and your experience within it now. So you mentioned um, that initially you were brought into it because of this pursuit of strength, whether it be the one arm handstand, that sort of thing. Uh, but maybe can you bring us through maybe some of the, from the earlier years as well, like what some of the most important lessons or concepts that were passed through to you that maybe like surprised you? Yeah. So I think a lot of things has, has surprised me for sure, but I can start at the, at the beginning. Uh, I found Ido maybe 2010, 2010 around that era. And I just found his YouTube videos online and I was amazed at what I saw. Um, and I tried to find as much information as possible during that time. During that time, I had zero money. You know, I couldn't afford to go to a workshop. I couldn't afford to do his internship or online coaching or anything. So I, I just went on the free resources like his Facebook page, his, his blog, his blog. And I, I read everything multiple times and tried to uh, not only read it, but, but do it. So I would take what he was saying and I would implement it. And I think that's the best thing that you can do if you are someone that does not have enough money to go learn from him because it is expensive. And I realized that not everybody, um, especially if you're younger, has that disposable income that you can that you can learn in that way. There's a lot of good resources. So you can go to his old blog, his, his Facebook, his new website, and you can learn a lot. And then um, about four years after that, I saved just enough money, like literally just enough to go to my first workshop, uh, Movement X in, in uh, New York. And that blew me out of the water. I, I thought at that time that I was very good. I could do a muscle up. I could do um, a tuck back lever. I could do a 30 second handstand. So I was the man, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was the man. And then I go there and I see what Johnny Saponoso can do, what Odelia, Odelia Goldschmidt can do. And I was blown away with not only their physical abilities, but the way that they relayed information, information and the way that they taught. I had never been exposed to such great teachers ever in my life. And after that day, I really tried to dive in. Again, I used all my money to go to the workshop, so I couldn't afford anything else. <laughs> and I was poor for the next, for the next year. Um, but I made it work and I saved again. And then I went to my second workshop in 2016, uh, which was the corset. And that one was in Philadelphia in the United States. And again, blown away with the concept um, and, and loved every moment of it. And then I got deeper and deeper. I went to um, Boulder Movement Collective, which is now called Ape Company, and learned from Matt Bernstein just for uh, a week and Zach Feiner for a week and was blown away with the way that they're able to relay information and how big the community got over there. And now it's even bigger. Um, and then in, uh, I moved to China. And then in 2018, I went to South Korea for the locomotion workshop um, that was taught by Johnny Saponoso and amazed by his level of teaching, his level of, like every time I go to a, a new workshop by them or, or anytime I see them, I'm just amazed at the level of, the, the way that they're able to give information is very, very impressive. I have never seen a better teacher than Johnny Sepinoso. He, he is the best teacher I have ever come across. And I strive to, to be uh, a tenth of what he is in, in the terms of teaching and physical abilities. Um, and I try to copy his teaching style the best that I can. But of course, we are different people. So we're going to teach 
um, differently. You know, I can't, I can't copy 100% the way that he does. And I'm trying to learn as much as I can from that process. Uh, and then in 2017 was the first time that I did online coaching under them. And uh, I loved every part of the process. The most difficult thing at that time was I was moving to China right when I started online coaching pretty much. So when I moved to China, I was in hotels for the first month. I was traveling on airplanes a lot and I had to do all of my sessions in a small hallway in the hotel room. I had to move my hotel bed and I had like a wooden platform. I would do my hand balancing on there. Um, I had to find random trees in right next to my hotel and hang the rings. And I had to, you know, really challenge not only myself, but also um, my, my Chinese as well, because I had to communicate. Oh, can I, can I put it here? You know, can I, can I hang up rings here? Um, and, and that was a very important part of, of my development, I think, was being able to still put in the work despite all of these, uh, all of these things that I could just write off as this is too difficult. I don't have the time. Uh, I don't have a stable environment, you know, but I just made it happen. Mm. Have you ever woken up and just that feeling has overcome you and just gone like, ah, oh, this is just too difficult? I've never had that thought, but I've definitely had, um, I haven't been motivated and that's, that's very common and I don't rely on motivation. I think, um, I tell this a lot to my students. If you rely on motivation, you will quit after three months. You know, the, the motivation does not stay that, that inspiration, the, you can watch as many ins inspirational YouTube videos as possible and you will not be able to continue the practice. You have to find internal motivation, internal inspiration in order to continue this. So it, it comes down to maybe habit, maybe uh, a long-term oriented practice where, where you look at the long-term over those short-term goals. And you have to, I think having a teacher and having a process is something that makes it a lot easier. So if you're training by yourself, it's gonna be much more difficult to, to stay motivated, I think, but it can definitely be done and um, you just have to stay on top of it. And how do you coordinate it when you go into other areas such as the Kung Fu or, or something else? Like does this, does some part of that practice then get like uh, substituted or do you keep with that core practice and then add it on the top? Absolutely. It gets, it gets, um, I would say, uh, substituted if you will. So when I was training Kung Fu or training eight hours a day, I would have two hours, two and a half hours for lunch. So I would eat lunch and then the rest of the two hours was, uh, my own work. So I would do hand balancing, some strength, uh, and I would do it all in the small little area we had to to live. Um, it was freezing cold. Uh, we did our heater didn't really work, so the floor was freezing cold, and I just had to deal with it. And I did lose some attributes at that time, like uh, strength and, and hand balancing. But I was able to regain it after I I stopped um, after I left the Kung Fu Academy. Um, but it definitely you can't keep up six hours of work plus eight hours of work plus sleep plus eating. It just does not add up. Yeah. And so it naturally leads to the next question, which is about recovery, recovery protocols, especially during those type of periods. What have been some of your effective tools that you found for yourself? Yeah. So recovery is something I do very well and I've always done very well. So I think I'm, I'm, 
I, I can relay good information here. The, the two biggest things that influence recovery, number one, sleep, number two, nutrition. So if your nutrition and sleep are crap, you can foam roll all day, sit in the ice bath all day, nothing's going to happen. So if you prioritize both of these areas, you're gonna recover much, much better. If your sleep is bad, your nutrition is probably bad. If your nutrition is bad, your sleep is probably bad. So they really work hand in hand. So the, the first thing that I want my students to get is quality sleep. This is what you should prioritize. I always, um, uh, I read a book, what is it called? I, I can't remember at this time, but they did a study inside the book about sleep and uh, on melatonin production. And they found that if uh, a tiny millimeter of light was shined on the back knee of a person in a pitch black room, that decreased melatonin secretion by something like 10, 20, 30%. So oh. if you have any type of light in your room from the phone, from a charger, from the, the crack in the door, this is gonna decrease melatonin production. So I always um, tell my students, take the phone outside, uh, charge your laptop in a different room, uh, black out everything, and you're gonna, you're gonna get much better sleep. Um, so prioritizing sleep and nutrition would be the two biggest things for recovery. And then once those are prioritized, you can add the little icing on top. Mm. And in terms of nu nutrition, do you, what's your sort of guidance there? Uh, I am a big fan of, I guess, the evolutionary perspective where we're eating real food. Most of the food that I buy, not most, uh, I try to buy from a local farm here and I get uh, some, some butter, some meat, some bones from that local farm. And then the rest of the produce is organic from as the best source as I possibly can from these areas. I eat a lot of meat. I eat a lot of vegetables. I eat uh, some fruit. That is the main part of my diet is meat and veggies, some fruit, some nuts, and, and um, very limited processed foods no sugary foods. Uh, that, that's a very important part. And that's something that was very hard for me, uh, especially when I was younger. I ate sugary foods all the time. And I would, I would be brushing my teeth all the time, flossing, and I would still get cavities. And then I'd wonder, why am I getting cavities? I'm brushing every day, twice a day. I'm flossing. <laughs> and that, that sugary, you just can't reduce, you can't um, reverse that sugary food effect. And it's funny because sometimes the toothpaste is really sweet as well. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine candy flavors toothpaste. Would be, yeah, yeah, you're right. It is. It is a little sweet. You're right. And how is that uh, search for that type of food like in, in China? Is that easy to find? Uh, the difficulty in China is the soil quality. And mm. there's not a lot of research being done, especially in the area that I am of soil quality. But I know that it's not the best. Uh, so the, the best thing that I can do is I buy directly from the farm because China has this thing called wet markets, which is basically a farmer's market. Um, and you can go and buy directly from that farmer that's selling it. And the thing about China is people like fresh food. So they'll have the chicken alive and you'll pick the chicken and they will kill it right there. They will have uh, the cow alive and they'll, they'll pick it and you'll kill it right there because they want to see that it was originally already alive and they want to see that it's healthy. Because I think, uh, especially in American stores, we have, like if we buy fish, the head is cut off. Uh, they're descaled. There's no bones inside. It looks like it was processed in uh, a factory. I wouldn't be able to tell the difference uh, beyond the color of the fish uh, if it was a real fish or artificially made. But in China, the fish is swimming in the tank and you pick it and they kill it and you know that it's the good one. So um, that's something I really like about China is they really want fresh food that uh, the animal has been, um, is a healthy animal. If, if, the, if the animal is dead, they won't buy it. 
It's very different to over here, isn't it? I think it's like the first time I ever saw chicken feet. A bit like in the whole chicken, it, even with the feathers off, it, it was very confronting because you're like, you, you're just not used to it, right? But there, I think it's there's something in that uh, as well, isn't there? Like to actually see that process and to see see where it's coming from, very, very direct. Yeah, confronting. No, I think it's very important. I think it's very important, um, mm. especially in, in English. In the English lang- language, we call uh, cow meat, we call it beef. And uh, we call um, deer meat venison. You know, we, we give it a different name because we don't want to associate it with the animal. But in, in the Chinese language, they call it directly deer meat, cow meat, chicken meat. You know, they don't, they don't separate that, that the, the animal from the actual product. And I think that's very important for for your idea of where does your food come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really important point. And, oh, uh, and uh, uh, not to interrupt you, but in the, uh, a funny thing about chicken feet is uh, my girlfriend, when we watch movies in, in China, her snack is not popcorn, it is chicken feet. So she'll bring out the, the chicken feet and eat it. And I found that the weirdest thing ever, but now I'm quite used to it. You're hooked on the chicken feet, yeah. <laughs> I'm not hooked on it, I'm not hooked on it, but I, I, I don't hate it anymore. <laughs> and um, yeah, one thing I wanted to ask you, because now you're doing the, uh, the teaching after learning from, from Ido and, and the method as well. What, what's the difference that you think that you offer versus um, maybe a candidate and they're looking around and there's always that option, right? Like they could just sign up to the Edo thing directly. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, you have to resonate with the teacher. So if you see person A and you really enjoy what he is saying and what he is bringing, he's probably going to be able to give you um, a good experience. If you've never heard of me, maybe I don't give you a good experience because you don't have a really a, a relationship with what I am or, or, or what I try to preach. So, so that's the first thing. I think you have to have some sort of relationship with, with the coach. With, um, with other coaches, I think I'm, very, I'm able to give the information very well. So I'm able to give feedback. I'm able to communicate. And that's what I prioritize with my online coaching, especially because we are at a very far distance. Many of my students are in different countries. Um, and it's difficult to get around that border of, of the internet. So I try to have as much communication as possible. I encourage questions. I encourage video submits often. And we have Skype conversations once a program. And I use these um, to answer questions, to, to help them understand how to progress. Why do we do this? Um, and we sometimes have philosophical conversations as well if they're having a certain question there. And I, I think they get a lot of benefit from having that small 30-minute conversation with me. Um, even if uh, they don't ask a lot of questions, they're able to understand things a little bit better. And I found this the best way because when I first started online coaching, I did not have regular Skype conversations, everything was through email, and I felt very distant with my students, and I wanted a closer connection. And then once I implemented those those um, online chats, I felt very much closer with my students. They were able to progress. They weren't going off the program as often, and they they uh, really developed an interest in in the practice itself. And what's your preference, online or in person? I would say uh, if I had to have a preference, it would be in person. I, I love online coaching. It's actually, I was thinking about this last, last night. Um, five years ago, online coaching was my dream job and now I have it. And I didn't really ever think about 
I achieved my dream job. You know, sometimes it just happens and you don't really think about it. Hmm. So I love the online coaching aspect, but I, I prefer to teach in person. It's much easier to relay information. It's quicker. And um, I, I get a lot of uh, good feedback from the student when they are performing right in front of me. And I'm able to give that correction immediately. Hmm. And taking it to these group classes now that you're starting to build, you say like not only in China, but in Ohio. Uh, yeah. What's the his history behind that? What's happening at the moment? Yeah. So uh, we already finished. Uh, I had a first month uh, with my group here in Ohio and our main qualities at that time was uh, developing locomotion, uh, some jumping and some rail work, uh, just some very uh, foundational work there. And um, we had a lot of, a lot of good time. They had a, uh, uh, a lot of progress within that that month time and i was very proud of it and i originally only was going to do a month because the weather's starting to get bad here we were training outside and i didn't know when i was going to come back to china and now that things are a little bit clearer we're going to do another month uh probably starting november 1st and i found a facility that is willing to to host us uh, inside a crossfit facility so tomorrow, actually, I'm going to go to the CrossFit facility, see what it looks like, but it's looking very good, and we'll probably continue the practice. And next, next month of work will be focused on hand balancing, strength, uh, so some of the more physical elements of the practice. And you mentioned like you give them sort of homework to do by themselves. So there's this like sort of solo orientation. How do you make the most of now you've got this group of people together, and I guess that opens up the door for different opportunities because you've got uh, people together what type of training um do you think you can benefit most from when you work with a partner or, or with within a group yeah so i think i think if you're going to develop a practice you need an element of group or partner work and it's very important at this time because of the the covid19 we're not doing uh close contact partner work which is what i prefer but we can get also a lot of partner development, maybe in specific cues, uh, specific um, uh, commands from the partner that is very beneficial to you. Like if you are uh, doing locomotion on the ground and you're trying to improvise, you can do this individually for sure. Um, but it is also helpful if the partner is um, kind of giving you the, the, the elements that you should improvise in. And you would combine things that you normally wouldn't combine when you're by yourself. So I think it's a very important part. The group classes to me are a chance for them to uh, work together as a group and get direct feedback from me and get all the details in line. And then when they go to their individual practice, they can spend more time on those elements than we did in the, in the group practice. And they can kind of iron out everything and then come back to the group. And then we can work on more advanced things. Mm. And comparing, I guess, how the group in America learns versus when you've taken groups in China, how they learn, what, what do you sort of see the differences in perspective there? It's, it's, it's difficult to say because in China, I have uh, Western, Western students and Chinese students. I would say the, the, the Chinese students never, ever complain. And sometimes the Western students will say, uh, I don't want to do this, or you will see on their face that they don't want to do it. But in, in the Chinese students, I think that um, it's, it's, it's the concept of saving face. So you never want the teacher to, to lose face. You never want him to feel like he is um, losing interest from the students. So I think they will always 
try their best, whatever I give them, and they will always show some type of interest, as opposed to in, in Western, maybe we don't need to uh, always show like 100% respect for the teacher at all times. So if we don't like something, we might show it in the face or we might vocalize it a little bit. Um, I can take the example of the horse dance. If uh, I tell uh, uh, some Chinese students to do the horse dance for 90 seconds, they will hold it for 90 seconds despite how much it sucks, how much uh, they're shaking, they will not stand up. But if I give it to uh, somebody that is from uh, Western culture maybe, maybe after 60 seconds, after it gets really, really hard, they will stand up for a second and then come back down. So I think that there's a small difference between um, both of those ideas of how to practice. Mm. And you've got uh, quite a large growing YouTube library now, um, which is how I came across you. And I do have to thank you for sharing, you know, really valuable insight through it and also done in a, in a quite entertaining way as well. How do you decide what you're going to share on there and, and what you're not going to share? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing, actually, especially as the YouTube channel is growing. I feel more responsibility, not only to put out content that is going to be useful to people, but to put it out in a very good way. So sometimes um, this has happened very often where I will want to share something on YouTube, I will film it. And then when I get to the editing, editing stage, I am not satisfied and I never post that video. And it's something that is very difficult and it's getting more and more difficult because of the growing um, subscribers that I have on YouTube. I feel more, <clears throat> a bigger sense of um, responsibility to give good information and not always provide this, this uh, too much of, of the same thing, if that makes sense. So one thing that I did in the past on YouTube that I no longer do is before I was putting out a video a week. And now I do not do that because if I have this strict a video a week, sometimes those videos are going to be pushed even if I don't want them to be pushed. And I only want to put out quality information that I 100% believe in and I have gone through the process itself. So on YouTube, I only share things that I have gone through myself, I have taught in person and I have taught online. Once all of those are there, then I feel comfortable uh, sharing the information on, on YouTube. And what's interesting is on YouTube, I started that channel a long time ago and it was originally just an archive to see my training. So you'll see like uh, some tumbling on there, some muscle ups, maybe I put together a small video. And through doing that, I got a, really, a real interest in creating videos, like um, putting these together and then seeing um, how I did and then putting music to it. I really like that. And then I got a small like subscriber base, maybe 20 or 30 people. And then somebody would say, hey, can you, can you teach us how to do a chin up or, or this or that? And I was like, oh yeah, I can do that. And then I did that. And then I started doing, you know, filming my own sessions and then it slowly grew. And now, now it is what it is today. And I'm sure it'll change um, in the near future. Mm. Yeah, it's really awesome to see because, you know, it, it presents it from your own sort of unique perspective, which I think is really helpful for this, for this growing culture, because maybe sometimes what I, what I feel with uh, the, the movement culture, maybe it's part of the, the labeling as well. Like we we're saying, it's uh, people describing it as mobility or something like that with the misconceptions, or uh, there's a bit of inaccessibility sometimes potentially with, even if you see an Edo video, for you and I, maybe, you know, that really hooked us, but for the other person, they're just like, well, 
it's just way over their head. They're, they're, they're like, we're, we're, we're never going to do that. Do you think uh, more people in this culture should be uh, sort of putting more stuff out there, sharing more for free and publicly like, like you've done? Like what are some of the benefits that you've, you've received? I don't think necessarily um, people in the practice should be sharing the way that I do. Um, and, but I've gotten a lot out of sharing and I've learned to be a better teacher sharing because what I, when I, when I put a video out there and I'm thinking about what to say, it makes it much easier once I take that information and I, I would teach it online or in, in person because I've already narrowed down what I want to say and I can say it in a concise way that I can put on YouTube. Um, if you see the raw material of my YouTube clips, there's a lot of, um, 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 and you know, just thinking through things. Um, and maybe a five minute video took an hour to, to film because I was thinking, how can I best give this information in the best way possible? And I think it's getting better and better. Um, but to answer, uh, like I said, I don't think everybody should be sharing, um, the information I do because it takes time. It's difficult. And as you grow on a platform like YouTube, the comment section can get quite uh, erratic and, and quite uh, discriminatory. And it's, it's a difficult thing to adjust to for sure. Mm, I think the comment section is always a dangerous, dangerous section of any part, yes. <laughs> part of the internet. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So what else did I want to uh, ask? I, I guess um, following on from this, what are your sort of plans going on into the near future? Um, I, I guess my short-term plans, we're going to have another month with the group. And uh, right now my visa for going back to China is in is processing. So hopefully in the next month or so, I'll get that visa and then I can go back to China in December or January and then continue there. Um, the difficult part is when I go back to China, as of right now, I need to quarantine for 14 days in the big city of Guangzhou and then another seven days where I live. So I'll be quarantined for 21 days uh, total and uh, flights are ridiculous right now. It costs like 4,000 US dollars to get one way ticket to China. Wow. Um, so it's, it's going to be big monetarily and um, from a time perspective. Well, I do wish you luck for those 21 days, but it's luckily, you, you know, you've got a practice like this where all you have to do is stand for an hour so you can pass <laughs> many hours practicing water yeah. quality. <laughs> yes, for sure. The airport is a good place for that. That's good. And just final question that I wanted to end on is uh, I've seen that, you know, you're quite an avid reader of, of books and literature. If you could recommend one book, uh, maybe about two areas, one about China and one that's informed you about movement. What do you think, uh, what would you recommend to people to check out? Hmm. Um, I want to be concise here because uh, I want to give good book recommendations that I think a lot of people would, would benefit from. The, from the movement side, I'm going to steer towards nutrition and I'm going to give the recommendation of a book called uh, Nutrition and Degenerative Diseases. This is a book by, uh, it's a DDS. So he's a, he's a dentist. Uh, I think his name is Winston, Weston, Weston Prince or Weston Price. But it's a book from the 1920s, 1930s. And basically what happened was um, his son had died at a very young age from um, a dental disease. And he was a dentist himself. And he was wondering, why did my son die? Why could I not prevent this with my profession? Um, and he went around the world to different um, 
primitive tribes to study their facial structure and their teeth and based on what they ate. And he looked at um, if they were eating their, their primitive diet and had no uh, Western foods like white flour, white sugar, their teeth were designed perfectly, no need for braces. They had a big um, opening in the skull. They were smart, they were strong. And then as soon as that primitive tribe um, went into the, the white flour, the sugar, the teeth started to decay and uh, the, the gap in the mouth started to decrease and then teeth started to become crooked and dental cavities became prevalent. So this was a very interesting book that really changed my perspective on how important nutrition is, not only for ourselves, but if we're going to have kids in the future, the, the nutrition of the father and the nutrition of the mother is very important for that nutrition of the, the infant baby and then in future, in future years. Um, and then for um, a more book on China, um, maybe from a not historical point, but a very uh, powerful old book is called uh, The Journey to the West, Journey to the West. And this is about uh, uh, some fictional characters of like the Monkey King, and you can really get a sense of what uh, kind of Chinese philosophy at that time, what was it like, and uh, the storytelling. There's, there's books on this, there's TV shows, there's movies. It's a very popular uh, book series. Well, great to have you on the, the podcast and awesome to connect and hear your side of the story uh, beyond all the YouTube videos. I've really enjoyed it. For all those listening out there, if they wanted to check out more uh, and find out more, connect with yourself, uh, where would you prefer them to look? Uh, you can go to my YouTube channel, which is uh, The Tao Wei. Tao is T-A-O. Uh, I also have a website, with, which is taoweimove.com. And if you want to contact me, you can contact me at info at taoweimove.com, info at taoweimove.com. I appreciate you sharing your time here today, Antonio. Um, and I look forward to seeing your movements, especially in the, in the new future. Yes, thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure. And that's a wrap, guys. That's episode 33. Thanks to Antonio for jumping on the podcast. I really appreciate him sharing his time, sharing his really interesting story. I hope you got something out of that. I think those adventures in China sound really interesting and really fun. And that's what comes through when you, if you check out his YouTube channel, which I highly recommend. It's the Taoway on YouTube. You can search it up right now. Shares a lot of insight with how he approaches teaching material, also his research in his physical practice. So I get a lot of inspiration and ideas out of that. So I can highly recommend that as a great source. Got a lot more great guests coming on. Remember, if you have any feedback or Maybe if there's an area that you'd love me to dig into more or ask any questions, please feel free to reach out, send me a message. You can find me either on Instagram, at P. that's at P-H-A-O-N-P, or you can go on to thepassivehang.com and there's a contact box on the website. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks to you guys for sticking around. I really appreciate your support and please, if you enjoy it, share it with a friend. That's it for today, guys, and I'll see you on the next episode.